Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. One thing we all know, here it being Valentine's Day, one thing we all know is that love is hard. It's, it's the best love is still really hard. And for the most part, the gap between our fantasies about love and the realities of our lives tends to widen more often than it contracts. And then, I mean, that's sort of under normal circumstances. Then you throw in a pandemic, you throw in lockdown, you throw in concerns about transmission, you throw in different value sets that play out in highly biological ways, and you've got a real mess on your hands. Uh, And (laughs) so happy Valentine's Day is what I'm saying, I guess. We're going to talk about all this on the other side of the news. think about it, the nearness of you. So many of our great love songs are are about that whole question. Rogers and Hart say, you know, you're nearer than the ivy to the wall is, nearer than the winter to the fall is. And Backrack and David wrote about close to you. That's one of the ways we think about love and intimacy is we want to get close. Um, And even when someone's far away, we think about how near they feel. That's the Rogers and Hart song is very much about that. But here in a time of pandemic, the whole idea of nearness has gotten very complicated, right? Some people, as you will hear in a few minutes, some people wound up getting nearer <laughs> than maybe they ever really wanted to be and, and found that nearness, the nearness of you, difficult to sustain. And then other people were not able to get near anybody because... It wasn't safe. 
So here on Valentine's Day, yes, those questions, those questions are more vivid, more penetrating, maybe more triggering to use uh, a common parlance these days than they've ever been. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about how hard it is. It's as I said before the news, it's love is really hard under the best of conditions. <laughs> love is really hard if you're spending a year in Barbados. You know, but love's really, really hard under these conditions. So um, here to guide us through, all the way through the show, she's been with us before, although I think it was for a book called Against Love. Um, Laura Kipnis uh, has joined us. She's the author of Love in the Time of Contagion, a Diagnosis, among other books. Uh, you will meet other people uh, as we go along here. Uh, but yes, I mean, to whatever extent I've set up a concept, she wrote the book about that concept. So Laura Kipnis, welcome back to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So let's begin with the nearness of you. Um, one of the things you write about early in the book is your own relationship. Uh, your own relationship was one that involved you uh, and uh, a, a lover, partner, whatever we're going to call boyfriend, whatever we're going to call him. Uh, you have separate apartments. One of them's uptown. One of them's downtown. Uh, it's a 25-minute subway ride. So you decide... Uh, at long last, to combine lives. And, and a lot of one of your chapters is sort of what that combination felt like. Tell our listeners a little bit more about that. Well, I love the way you set this up because um, as it is about conflictedness. I mean, wanting love, but also wanting it on your own terms or wanting it, but in limited quantities or the you know, I mean, yes, it can get very overwhelming. And I had written this book against love, which is a kind of anti-domestic screed uh, over the top and polemical um, and, and partly focused on the ways that couples manage to find ways to like, you know, police each other and surveil each other and control each other, partly out of our anxieties and um, you know, complexes, uh, so that that's part of domestic coupledom. So I had been a resistor and then found myself, as many did in pandemic times, sheltering. And in this case, in very close quarters, a one-bedroom Manhattan apartment, um, not a very huge space for two people with possibly big personalities to figure out how, how to coexist. And, you know, also in these very anxious and, and overwhelming times. So that was the inception of the book. And then I also wanted to try to figure out how other people were, were coping with these circumstances and how people were thinking about love and the future of love and their, and their own relationships. Right. I mean, I think there's sort of a push and pull that we'll hear across the hour today uh, about people who are uh, experiencing more intimacy, more closeness than they're used to, uh, and and struggling with that, uh, as well as people who can't really close the physical, geographical distance between themselves and anybody because they're not in a relationship, and this is a really difficult time to try to to make one. Um, so yeah, I mean, I th I think the stories you tell about your own relationship though are very interesting and very recognizable to uh, a lot of people, and there are ways in which if you're spending three nights a week together, it's really different from spending seven nights together because it's just sort of everything Everything has to wind up flopping out onto the table, right? I mean, right. Um, or know. as I joked, 
seven or ten nights a week together. That's right. I like that line. I mean, Rilke, you know, famously says, love consists in this, that two solitudes protect and touch and greet each other. And, And I think that's actually still a pretty good model for a relationship, even if you're spending seven nights a week or 10 nights a week together that, you know, that you ideally can create some of that solitude, some of the individuality that Rilke uh, points at without totally losing track of the intimacy. But that's the push and pull, right? Well, I veer, I think, more in a Freudian direction. And what interests me, I guess, perversely, maybe, is um, the ways that people use each other as these kinds of projection screens and the ways, you know, neurosis and anxiety and psychodrama play out. I mean, often in these really creative kinds of ways. And, you know, some of the comedy of this um, or dark comedy comes out of the ways that, you know, in COVID times, like just even such things as these sanitation protocols became ways that people used, I thought, to kind of act out and mask, you know, payback and and aggression. Like I have this uh, discussion about uh, a couple I knew where one of the uh, partners insisted on washing the lettuce with soap for a year. And I started thinking, but wouldn't it just tastes like so no matter how much you rinsed it in wasn't this like a desire to wash the other person's mouth out with soap but you know disguised as a sanitation protocol possibly i mean the other thing that we have to acknowledge as a reality is that even when there's no pandemic uh, even the, any intimate relationship begins on a very high note and, and then goes into other kinds of iterations, uh, all of them a little bit different, but you kind of learn to pick your battles. But there's also a way in which, you know, for any relationship, but probably one, especially one when you're under this kind of enforced confinement, the bloom is off the rose. I think, uh, I think there's a song uh, by Paul Simon called Darling Lorraine, and it starts once again on that high note. Uh, but in the middle of it, he starts singing about this. What? You don't love me anymore? What? You walking out the door? What? You don't like the way I chew? Hey, let me like to stay in bed So, as usual, I mean, Simon's so good at this, running his thumb down that knife, right? Uh, I mean, I, I picked this song, too, because I, there's a line in your book that's pretty close to that, about you don't, you don't like the way I chew. <laughs> you know, and, and so if you're going to go with the Freudian um, uh, interpretation, you're probably going to say, you know, it's really probably not about the chewing, you know? <laughs> yes, displacement. Um, you know, it's not about the dishwasher, how you load it. It's about why you haven't had sex for the last two weeks. So, yeah, displacement. And for some reason, I, you know, maybe it's just my own dark temperament. I find those sorts of things more interesting to write about than the happy love stories. Like breakups just seem infinitely more interesting or the neurosis of, of modern relationships. 
But most relationships exist in that middle ground. They are not perfect ecstasy. It's not the end of a rom-com, you know, but ideally, if there's still relationships, you also haven't fled to opposite corners of the earth. And, And I think, you know, then the question is, what are you playing around with in that middle ground? And one of the stories that I really liked in your book, and this will go to one of your dark places too, is the story of your boyfriend and his feelings about having the top of his head patted or touched. Uh, tell that one. Well, you know, you do get to know somebody's inner weirdness the longer you've been together. And he, for some reason, has this complex about having the top of his head touched, which he says makes him feel like a dog. And I did find out about myself, this was kind of disturbing, that the longer we were together, you know, I found these just wells of inner sadism welling up. And what would happen is we'd be watching television and I would have to like walk behind his chair to get to the kitchen to get more, you know, wine or chips or chocolate. And I somehow found myself patting the top of his head every time I went by. And, you know, why? I don't know. Uh, And at first he complained and then he just stopped complaining, which I found made me feel very close to him. You know, I had bent him to my will. So, okay, I'm I'm a weird a weirdo sadist. But I suppose, you know, those moments were happening in many, many relationships, just strange strangeness welling up. Yeah, I think it's somewhere around that um, moment that you also describe, I think, throwing a can of soda at him, uh, and you, you describe yourself as winding up like Roger Clemens um, and and being unaware that the soda was actually spilling out of the can as you did this. But um, but I, I just want to tell you this for your own information. This has nothing to probably has nothing to offer our listeners right now. When you get done with this interview, you need to Google the name Adrian Beltre, B-E-L-T-R-E, uh, another baseball player who probably faced Roger Clemens at some point and who, uh. who could not stand having his head touched uh, <laughs> and, and and which only excited in his teammates the desire to touch his head. And there are just tons of uh, uh, there's lots of footage of, you know, big burly catchers coming over and rubbing his head and, and Beltier would take a swing at them. Uh, oh, how great. They, Thank but, you for that. That's a gift. Yeah, That's they, a Valentine's Day gift. Yeah, Thank you. They loved that. But, you know, I think that is it, it's the thing that you described the exchange that you described, it's kind of a metaphor for for deciding, you know, what domesticity and love and intimacy and daily life together is going to be like. How many of your things, your quote unquote things, are you going to get to keep, you know, and how many of them are you going to cede to the other person? Uh, well, you and- sound like a rationalist. I mean, do we decide <laughs> or does it just like overtake us. I mean, do you, you know, this is the whole thing. I I spent a lot of time thinking about this. Do you decide on your emotions or, you know, I mean, who's in control when it comes to emotions? And I think that the human condition, if I can universalize, is we've been handed this whole set of things like IE emotions that we just do not know what to do with. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I'm not suggesting there's some kind of punch list uh, that you can go through about this stuff uh, that won't you know well anyway um and i also think one of the things that that you you detail here in a kind of an interesting way is the way in which 
I'm trying to think of a way to phrase it. Well, first of all, I think, you know, one of the things that relationships depend on, most relationships depend on, not all of them, is some remaining bit of mystique or allure, right? There's sort of a way in which, I don't know, you have to know somebody a really long time before you're willing to poop in their presence and maybe never. Maybe, if ever, yeah. yeah. You know, uh, and, and one of the things that you talk about also in the book is garbage. Uh, I'm going to play a little clip that it's a, it's a clip that you cite uh, in the book. It's from Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Garbage. All I've been thinking about all week is garbage. I mean, I just can't stop thinking about it. What kind of thoughts about garbage? I just, I've gotten real concerned over what's going to happen with all the garbage. I mean, we've got so much of it. You know, I mean, we have to run out of places to put this stuff eventually. The last time I, I started feeling this way is when that barge was stranded and, you know, it was going around the island and nobody would claim it. Do you remember that? Yes, I remember. Do you have any idea what may have triggered this uh, concern? Yeah, yeah. You see, the other night John was taking out the garbage and he kept spilling things out of the container and that made me, I started imagining like garbage can that produces garbage and it doesn't stop it just keeps producing garbage and it just keeps overflowing and you, you know what would you do if you know to try to stop something like that so i don't talk a little bit about that uh, explain how you you use it in the book well in a, a, a number of ways i mean one thing is i was thinking about the actual sanitation workers you know we would start reading about what they were having to deal with and you know especially at the beginning picking up stuff that was you know biohazard contaminated and uh you know then having to go home to their families and then people on their roots starting to treat them like they were you know, disease carriers. So I was thinking about the essential workers and, you know, we were all in these different kinds of situations, but um, sanitation workers, you know, kind of were going from place to place and were sort of carriers. Um, but I was also, I suppose in a sense, this book is a bit of a free association psychoanalysis. So I was thinking about, you know, the arguments that we all have or couples often have about garbage and cleaning and, and that kind of thing. But also, I, I went back to this story that had always fascinated me that I read as a teenager about a couple who were found to be living in this house completely like filled with six feet of garbage and police broke in and, you know, found out they'd been living in their own, you know, crap, uh, you know, had been this kind of respectable middle class family until this. So I think I myself am a little preoccupied with this idea, for one thing, of like what goes on behind closed doors in couples and you never entirely know. And then, you know, this metaphor of garbage building up as in the way in the same way as we were talking about emotions building up, you know, your your inner garbage, the stuff you can't get rid of. So it's a really mobile kind of both metaphor and, you know, and figure and, and actuality. Is there a way in which we have a kind of um, that some of us, the kind of people, you, me, people who listen to public radio, people who might buy and read your book, we have in the in a way a certain amount of, 
I don't know, surplus feelings of, of discretion we can exercise uh, and discernment, things we can choose uh, or choose not to experience uh, and, and, and a way in which we've been kind of been conditioned by watching uh, Mick Ryan and Tom Hanks fall in love over and over again, uh, a kind of sense that we're entitled to a, a pretty clean and pristine domestic bliss. I'm just thinking about like the entirety of the world, the, the 7 billion people. Uh, a lot of people probably have to live with a lot more crap and still manage to love and care and raise families or not raise families. Uh, I feel like in some ways the conversation we're having right now is kind of the privilege of neurosis. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, you know, my boyfriend's place is in Harlem in uh, New York. And one of the things I realized during the pandemic and spending much more time up there was the ways that you see people on the street who have just obviously never gotten adequate health care in their lives. And there are so many more people on walkers and canes and crutches, you know, and obviously disabled in, in ways that you don't see in, in other neighborhoods. So there was, um, yeah, I did have this sense of, you know, I'm somebody who was teaching, getting a, an income. So definitely the sense of contrast with the people, other people in the neighborhood. And, you know, this sense also just that doom was just down the street. I mean, Central Park, they were putting up these, you know, makeshift um, morgues in, in Central Park. So there was also that sense of, you know, death and destruction that you were very more close than than usual to. So, I, you know, especially, like they say, in the early months of the pandemic, all of that was just so much um, more part of the emotional texture of, of our lives. Absolutely. We're talking to uh, Laura Kipnis, the author of Love in the Time of Contagion, A Diagnosis, among many other books. Uh, we're going to take a little break right now. Laura's staying with us. We're also going to talk to a producer uh, of a podcast called This Is Dating, because both Laura and our next guest have many things to say about that. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygen it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Oh, hello. I didn't see you there. You still don't. You're looking the wrong way. I'm, I'm over here. <laughs> oh, I see. There you are. 
I must have been looking at your reflection in that mirror over there. That's not a mirror, that's a painting of a lion with an explorer's head in its mouth. <laughs> oh, so it is. You'll have to forgive me. This is my first time. I've been out of the house since lockdown. <laughs> Same for me. I'm not used to being out in public, and I'm <laughs> definitely not used to flirting with handsome men. Maybe you should give it a try. All right. How's this? There are mites in your pillows. And if you sleep with your mouth open, they'll go right in there. That wasn't good. I'm sorry. No, I thought it was cute. Why don't you um, try pick-up line on me? Okay. Here's one. You have beautiful eyes, but they look better on my floor. I don't think you said that right. That's Nick Jonas and Kate McKinnon on Saturday Night Live. Uh, our guests right now are Laura Kipnis, author of Love in the Time of Contagion, a Diagnosis, uh, and Hawote uh, Gaetana, uh, a producer on This Is Dating, a dating podcast made by Magnificent Noise, where you can listen in on people's first dates. Um, well, first of all, um, welcome to our show, Hawote. Hi, Colin. Thank you for having me. So tell us just a little bit more about the podcast, because I think it might be hard for people to wrap their minds around uh, what I just described. Yeah. Okay. So this idea came about when, you know, it was right at the beginning of lockdown, March 2020. We were all quarantined and feeling very, very lonely. And our team started thinking about how we would curate experiences for people to actually feel a little bit of connection. And dating felt like the hardest space within which to do that. But we knew that, you know, we are also the same producers that make Where Should We Begin with Esther Perel, where you listen in on couples therapy sessions. So we thought about what that might look like for dating and how to actually use the experience of everyone being in their homes as a strength, as opposed to it being the reason we can't connect. Um, obviously, comedy is comedy, but react to the clip that we just played, the Saturday Night Live clip. Uh, how far away is it from some of the awkwardness <laughs> that seems to uh, attend dating at this moment in human history? <laughs> um I want to say not that far away. I think it's it's hard to be charming and to be, you know, the person the person you imagine in your head that can flirt with whomever and that can take up space in a room. And then to be asked to do that on a date while being recorded is just that much harder. Um, and part of what we do to make that a little bit easier is we set the daters up with a dating coach. We also introduce them to all of the producers so that they know who's behind the scenes. And we also send them prompts during the date to help make the conversation more fluid. So I want to swing back to Laura Kipnis. Um, we're really kind of talking about the opposite phenomenon than from, from what we talked about in the first segment, uh, which was so much uh, about closeness, about nearness, about occasional feelings of asphyxiation because of the closeness, closeness and nearness uh, and perhaps the desire for a, a, a little bit of a membrane uh, between the two. Uh, this is the opposite, right, Laura? These are people who, who are wondering whether they can close the extreme distance I'm not talking about necessarily people on this show, but people who are just dating in general. Right. Well, one of the chapters that I wrote about was based on uh, interviews with a former student of mine who's now around 27 and is a uh, queer black millennial. And one of the things that I learned that was fascinating was in her circle, 
their dating lives do entirely play out in public because they're constantly tweeting and posting and, you know, using social media and their digital devices to create all manner of chaos and, uh, you know, and, and emotional drama. So, so the idea of your, your private life playing out in public, I think, is something that is kind of increasingly the norm, as for, especially, you know, for younger people. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so Huwate, now now that she says that, because uh, I was having a hard time even kind of relating to the concept uh, of the podcast. On the other hand, boy, I can't, somebody will tell me what movie this is from, but there's a movie uh, where uh, one character says to another, two people are in, in an intimate relationship, uh, one of them says, how many people are in this bed? And the other the guy, the other guy, the guy, I think, says, I don't know what you're talking about. And she says, well, Freud says at minimum, you know, uh, both of our parents are in this bed. How many people are in this bed? Uh, and and it, you know, listening to Laura talk, it does sound like if you're going to Instagram stuff and TikTok it and everything, mm-hmm. a, a lot of people might be in that bed. You know, I think that's that Woody Allen movie, uh, Husbands and Wives. That's it. But yeah, yeah. Who, who, what they, how, how about that? I mean, it feels yeah. as though the, the, we have a sort of a generational gap here. There's a sense in which there might be a higher level of comfort, just sort of involving yeah. all of the human race uh, in your date. Yeah, I mean, Laura, you're that's such an interesting anecdote because I think part of what we're seeing and why so many people were excited to be set up, even once you know the show launched, we had hundreds of applicants fill out. Um, a questionnaire saying, I want to be on a future date. And I think it's because of exactly what you said. There's so much that is private that is playing out in front of everybody. If you mm-hmm. go on TikTok right now and say dating in your 30s, you will see lots of people's dating profiles, including like, you know, funny things they say in their little audiograms or how they describe themselves, which is actually that's a very vulnerable thing for you to have put in your in your bio or your profile and Everyone can see that if someone makes a TikTok of it. So I think that's a big part of why people are looking to be set up by people they trust. That's part of why the show works. We never ask people to come on um, kind of for the for the voyeuristic aspect of it. We really, the big sell is we want to help you date a little bit better. We're not promising that you're going to meet the love of your life or anything like that. And our job as producers is to curate this, you know, hour to hour and a half um, experience that's fun and that allows for connection instead of, I think, what we are promised on dating apps and on the internet, which is a quick fix for your love life. We should say these dates are all virtual. And and so it kind of raises the question, and and I'd love for both of you to weigh in, but what day maybe you can Mm -hmm. begin. Like at some point, uh, these people decide whether or not to proceed from virtual to in-person or physical or yeah. IRL or whatever we're going to call that. Um, yeah. and, and and so, and then that, because we're in the middle of a pandemic, raises up a whole host of concerns. Mm-hmm. Have you been able to sort of get a sense of how how worried people are about that transition and what specifically they're worrying about? Yeah, I think it's different for different people, for sure. Right now, it's very different from when we were taping, right? So a lot of the taping happened between late 2020 and into a good part of 2021. And at that point, what we would say was our job is to set you up on this first date and to try and make it 
to create an environment that's as fun as possible for you to genuinely connect. Outside of that, if you choose to connect, that's entirely on you. And now we're at the stage to do in-person meetings, but it's hard. I think different people have different levels of comfort with it. You know, one of the things that I learned is that people are doing so much online investigation of people before they even meet mm-hmm. them. You know, the, the the woman I was interviewing would spend, you know, hours comparing people's profiles across different social media sites. So I think by the time it, for her, she would meet someone, she already knew so much about them. And it is a way, of <laughs> course, of assuaging your anxiety about the uncertainty of, mm-hmm. of meeting someone in person. But, you know, the the this constant like intel gathering is is part of the i think deal now with meeting someone online you do already sort of know them in advance yeah yeah and part of what we did was set everyone up on a blind date so we didn't tell anyone who they were going on a date ah. with but we did an episode between um a couple that we didn't know knew each other <laughs> <laughs> and so we were really nervous because we started thinking about how small the community was. And we thought, oh, no, if they've dated before, we don't we don't know what we're going to do. It turned out being a lovely date. But you're exactly right. I think part of what's really hard now is that, you know, if someone knows your name, they know so much about you. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I also wonder uh, who what they I mean, so people have been through a pandemic. They've been alone. They've been lonely um, in many cases. Um, and when you're lonely, what you think about is, well, I would like to be with someone. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think it, that could mean several different things. That could mean I would like to be someone on a, with, with someone on a date. I'd like to go on three dates with someone and then stop. I'd like to be in a real relationship. Um, mm-hmm. But but I'm think I'm wondering if if people have kind of conveyed to you how they feel about the whole idea of being single. I mean, in some ways, they've been single on steroids because uh, because <laughs> they they so difficult to get together with other people. But I can also imagine maybe people thinking, you know, maybe I like being single. Yeah. I think that if you are likely to sign up for a show where you're getting connected with a dating coach and you are asking to be set up with someone, um, there's a high likelihood that you are over the enjoying singleness and very much looking for partnership. And that's generally what we found, right? A lot of people who were saying, I struggle in these ways when I am in partnership with someone, but I'd like to do better. Or I have felt really lonely for the past X amount of years because I was in the wrong kind of relationship and, you know, I need help figuring out where, where to go next. But so, you know, oops. yeah. Well, then there's also the checklist. You know, I got very addicted to watching Indian matchmaking. And what I realized was all these people wanted to be set up. But then at the same time, they had these very strict checklists that could be very minute and arcane. Like one of the women who was trying to be set up would, would, you know, nix anyone who say like, liked comedy because she yeah. hated comedy. So there's this idea that you have to be, you know, identical in, in your preferences or your, you know, tastes in, in, in popular culture. So yeah. there's the checklist, which kind of impedes, you know, also the, like, you know, that something you, you didn't expect would happen to you. Yeah, that's so true. I also think, you know, when you're living in a moment where it's clear you can't control a lot of the stuff around you, you lean into, 
you know, a methodology of thinking that's maybe not super rational, right? So again, referencing TikTok, there are all of these hashtags around manifesting the kind of partner that you want. And they all encourage you to write this like intricate checklist of all of the characteristics that you, you know, need this person to have. And then there are steps that follow that. And one of our characters actually really struggled with that. He came in saying, you know, I need this person to be outdoorsy. I need them to love to dance. I need them to be a great communicator, et cetera, et cetera. But when we set him up with a dating coach, what really came out is like, he's he tends to attach very anxiously. So he likes people who are avoidant and he wants the most attractive person in the room just to be with that person, right? And that's the invisible item on the checklist. And so our challenge as producers was how do we help you see the world a little bit differently and maybe try to date from a slightly different perspective. You know, Laura, in your book, I think there's another thing that comes up. It's an entire chapter and we could talk about it for, you know, 40 minutes easily, but we can't. Um, But it is that we've also moved through a different era. We've been through uh, Me Too uh, and a lot of stuff that goes with this. So some of the things that might have constituted the dance of dating, the dance of courtship, uh, the acts of flirting, the ways of maybe kind of trying things out on other people, there are more tripwires now. There are more ways in which you maybe would react negatively to something that you might have been able to live with five years ago, or if you're on the other side of that equation, you're thinking maybe I shouldn't exhibit quite this aggressive uh, an interest. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit more about how the, the period we've just lived through uh, has also altered those rules. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think, and this is in the context of heterosexuality particularly, that, you know, what used to be seen as romantic or, you know, somebody sweeping you off your feet is now seen as, you know, verging on on sexual assault. And particularly, you know, things like somebody um, wanting to kiss you if the somebody is a, a male and, and, and you're a woman who's attuned to these things. So I think that it's very treacherous out there and, and very conflicted um, because, you know, I think that particularly for heterosexual women, you know, there used to be this idea that male power and suavity and that kind of thing was hot. And and now those things are seen as kind of endangering. So of all, all of the templates are, are shifting and changing. Um, and I think that, you know, you see bad first dates or bad hookups. People are now posting about them on, on, um, you know, online and, and people are being brought down for, you know, these I'm sorry for the, the, the bad, making bad moves, you know, that 10 years ago would have been considered the norm. So it's all shifting very fast. And I did, I wrote a chapter about that um, uh, called uh, Vile Bodies. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Uh, we're going to run out of time here, but Huate, are you seeing any of that uh, on your show? Are you seeing any people kind of maybe navigating a slightly different terrain? Yeah. And I think what Laura said is exactly right. I think that you are having to navigate not just your personal politics, but also the politics that surrounds the culture you're in. Right. And so, of course, we, our show was mostly in the U.S. and exactly the things Laura was men- was mentioning were active players in how our daters were talking and connecting. 
Okay, we're going to have to pause for a moment. Uh, we've been talking to Huete Gatana, uh, the producer, uh, a producer on This Is Dating, a dating podcast made by Magnificent Noise, where you listen in on other people's first dates. Laura Kipnis is going to stay with us. We're going to come back. We're going to tell you some more stories from Love in a Time of Pandemic. Time to say some special thank yous, starting with Kat Pastor, our technical producer, the person who makes the show sound so great. Uh, and then a lot of thought was put into it by our senior producer, Lily Tyson, who is the producer of this particular episode uh, as well. Uh, we're here with Laura Kipnis, author of Love in the Time of Contagion, a diagnosis, among other books. And we are now joined by Philippa Found, uh, an artist and writer and the creator of Lockdown Love Stories, an art project where people can anonymously submit their love stories from the COVID-19 time period. There are more than 1,300 stories that have been submitted to and published on the site. Philippa Found, welcome to our conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Um, do you want to say a little bit more about, maybe a, a little bit about what you were thinking you were going to get and what you were thinking you were doing when you set yeah. this up, as opposed to maybe what the reality turned out to be? Absolutely. So when lockdown was announced, um, well, on day one of lockdown, I said to my husband, there's going to be a divorce spike and a baby boom. And uh, I wondered which one we would be. <laughs> and um, then I started thinking about people who were single and who maybe had wanted to date. Um, I was thinking about couples that had maybe just very recently got together who are now going to be separated for like an unknown amount of time. And I was thinking about people who are already cohabiting, who um, now no longer have their social lives or in a lot of cases work to get away from their partner. Um, and I was thinking, wow, this is going to be intense, whatever your relationship status. Um, and I was sort of anticipating a lot of heartache, loss and loneliness and it, emotions that I think a byproduct of is shame. Um, and one of the things that I think um, very much helps if you are experiencing shame is to know that you are actually not the only person um, experiencing these thoughts or emotions, to know that what you are going through is actually very normal. Um, and so I built this website where people could anonymously submit their stories and where I'd publish on them online, because what I was hoping was to show people that whatever they were going through, whatever negative emotions they might be experiencing, 
um, whatever kind of bad side effects in their love life, um, that they weren't the only one going through it and to kind of create a sense of connection through that and make them feel sort of less bad about themselves in that process. Yeah, when you said that but, first yeah. thing, yeah, I had a kind of re a, a reaction or a, a, I made a connection. Uh, quite a few years ago, I was doing a magazine article for, uh, for well, about people who ride tandem bikes. And in fact, I was riding across Europe with, uh, I think, 80 couples uh, who, who rode tandem bikes. And these are married couples. Uh, and one thing that they said to me over and over, it's kind of a saying within that community, is wherever your relationship or your marriage is going, it's going to get there faster on a tandem bike. You're either going to you're going to crash and break up, or you're going to deepen your love for one another. And, and it sounds like you're kind of saying the same thing about the pandemic. That is it? I mean, lockdown. Um, I always say was a magnifier and an accelerant. So I feel like whatever was going to happen in your relationship just happened faster. And Laura, in the great tradition of Gail Sheehy, you put out a survey about uh, these kinds of questions. What what did just give us kind of a sense of, of what came back to you? Well, I think I found uh, similar things to Philippa, and, and I just got a chance to read some of the uh, latest ones on on your site. And I, people just really were um, eager to have this chance to express what they had been through, and there was so much eloquence, and that's what I saw on, on Philippa's uh, site, too. I mean, the writing was quite lovely. And, uh, you know, in Philippa's, I was struck with the ways people were often using uh, the, the little template to address their, their lovers. But I found a real mix of things. I mean, there was a lot of complaint, uh, you know, about the other person and, you know, people just really being fed up with the kinds of habits and, you know, getting to know somebody too well. But then people being really saying kind of moving things. And, you know, I'm a cynic, but very moving things <laughs> about um, what they had discovered about love and, and each other in, in these times. So, Philippa, I think it's important that you share, you know, give us maybe two or three of your, your favorites here, just so people get the flavor. Would you like me to read some of the stories? Yes, yes absolutely, yeah. Okay, okay. Well, I've got one here that is one of my favorites. Um, it's called Lockdown Lovers. We hooked up at university. We'd always stayed in touch from a distance, and I always wondered about what might have been. We'd been back in touch for a few months when lockdown happened, and I found myself stranded not in the country or city I normally lived, but the city where he lived. The odd text in the months leading up to the pandemic turned into some late night phone calls that lasted hours. I had COVID symptoms at the end of March. Five weeks later, I took an antibody test. It was positive. I'd done hours of research around immunity, and by this point, multiple reports confirmed it to exist, at least for a short time. We both lived alone and had been following strict social distancing. We decided to take a calculated risk and break lockdown. I cycled over an hour to get to his, and this became the weekend routine. It goes without saying that pandemic is a surreal and poignant time to be experiencing new or in our case, renewed intimacy with someone. In the earlier days with anyone, you're always so engrossed in each other, but the empty streets outside really did make it feel like we were the only two people in the world. Exploring our minds, exploring our bodies, coping together, listening to music, cooking, reading the news, chastising the government, hoping for a revolution, getting drunk. Our university years made it instantly so familiar, so warm, so comforting when some comfort was desperately needed. We both knew there was an end point. Our closeness was to be fleeting. I'd return to my city in a different country when restrictions lifted. Without needing to speak about it in any depth, we both knew we wanted it to be something that only existed in that moment, a little make-believe relationship frozen in time with the world around it. The new normal began and I went home. We spoke occasionally for a few weeks and then stopped. 
it didn't carry through into the new world. We left it behind. The creation of our little corner of the earth at a time when it was still lockdown lovers. Um, Laura Kipnis, I hear, I hear some Kipnisian touches, I, I think, in, in this, if that's an adjective. I was hoping to read just a couple of very short ones that are in a completely opposite mode to okay. that. Yeah, do it. Okay, this is the, the note of reality. Um, not that I don't like the romantic uh, mode also. All right, here's one. My husband wanted to show me plots and graphs on a daily basis. I hate numbers, and I'm especially angry about pie charts. My husband called me a crypto philistine. All right, here's another. We had one very rough argument for us where the oven had a short and turned itself off. And my husband thought I had turned it off and was gaslighting him like his ex-wife would have. I got very upset and went outside until I could trust myself not to yell at him. You know, all right, first of all, Laura, I just want to say one thing. I love the fact that it's a very Laura Kipnis touch that the one that Philippa read, which was about people who ultimately decided their yes. relationship couldn't go forward, really wouldn't survive the end of the pandemic and their resumption of normal life. That struck you as the really romantic one. Yeah, well, I mean, its mode was, you know, of poignancy and regret. Um, yeah. All right, here's just one more. Okay. I never thought he'd have sex online with some work colleague while I'm in the other room and still deny that he did something wrong. <laughs> well, okay, I, I have some romantic ones also, but yeah, no, you're 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 right about the um, yes. My so, take on, on right. Philippus. And for more about, for more about the online thing, you can see uh, Laura's book, and there's a whole chapter that includes Jeffrey Tubin. Anyway, um, so Philippa, I want to make sure that you have some time here near the end. I don't know, just once again, you you were saying that you and your husband said, you know, it's either going to wind up with a, with a baby or a divorce. Um, I mean, what did you take from all of this that you could put into your relationship? Um, what I think everyone could have experienced in lockdown was that when um, those distractions of our everyday normal lives are removed, you sort of have clarity, like you cannot escape um, the reality of your relationship choices. So whether you're single or newly dating or in a long-term relationship, you suddenly really know, you see the cracks and um, you see the positives. And so I've had stories about, you know, people re-falling in love with the person they've been with for a long time and other stories about them deciding, actually, I don't want to be locked down with you, so we need to break up. Um, and I, so I think, I guess, self-reflection um, re is really important um, and working out what you want and what you need. Um, and a positive, I guess, um, is to take moments of time with each other because a lot of married people found that one of the nice things, at least in the beginning, um, was that they were suddenly having different moments of the day with each other, like having lunches together when they'd normally be at work, but obviously now working from home. Um, so there was um, good, good and bad things to take, but I guess having your eyes open in a relationship and staying alert See, those lunches are when you figure out that you don't like the way they chew. Uh, all right. Uh, well, this has been a terrific fun. Laura Kipnis, author of Love in the Time of Contagion, a Diagnosis, among other books. Philippa Found, an artist and writer and the creator of Lockdown Love Stories, an art project where people can anonymously submit their love stories from the COVID-19 time period. More than 1,300 stories now sit on that site. I'm going to let Blossom Deary take us away. Moon and June and roses and rainbows and Down with songs that moan about night and day Down with love, yes, take it away, away Take it away, take it away Give it back to the birds and the bees and the V and D Down with love, yes, take it away, away Take it away, take it away 
with eyes Romantic and stupid Down with size Down with Cupid Brother, let's stuff that dove Down with love Down with love The flowers and rice and shoes Down with love The root of all midnight blues Down with things that give you That well-known Take that moon and wrap it in cellophane Down with love, let's liquidate all its friends Moon and June and roses and rainbows ends Down with songs that moan about night and day Down with love, yes, take it away, away Take it away, take it away Give it back to the birds and the bees and the Viennese Down with eyes, romantic and stupid Down with size, down with Cupid Brother, let's stuff that dove down with love Down, down, down